We're working our way through the book of Hebrews. This is part 45. And the title this morning is Biblical Faith in an Unbiblical Culture. Biblical Faith in an Unbiblical Culture. We studied chapter 11 where you get this great teaching on faith. And we started with verse 1 and 2 which talk about creation. Worked through to to Noah and the flood. And the next in line in the examples listed is Abraham and his followers. Hebrews 11, 8 through 16. I hope you have a Bible. Some kind of Bible in church. You should no more go to church without your Bible than you go without your... That's it. And believe me, we don't want you here without your pants. Bring a Bible. Verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. Isn't that interesting? Live in the land of promise. It's the promised land, but he lived there as though in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. So most people feel that Abraham actually lived to see Jacob reach an age of roughly, no one knows for sure, 18, 17, 18. Heirs with him of the same promise, verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, I don't know that he would find that a very flattering description, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many and as, many as the innumerable grains on the sand of the seashore. Every once in a while, some wise guy will say, see, well, there aren't that many followers of Abraham, like the grains on the seashore. The point is, it's as innumerable, uncountable. Not saying the exact number is the same. 13. These all died in faith. They all died in faith. Not having received the things promised... Interesting, eh? It talks about him being in the promised land, but then it says they died not having received things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus, like who call themselves strangers and exiles on the earth, people who speak like that make it clear that they're seeking a homeland for if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a, a city. Let's pray. We would have no way of knowing these things 
not the spiritual truths and applications beyond the bare history if we didn't have your word. There are truths here that should make our hearts sing with joy and praise. Church, look at me just for a sec. You know how every once in a while Tom will come out here and he'll stand here and he'll say, Church, let's just, let's just lift our voices. Let's just give God praise. The instruments are going to play that through. Let's everyone just lift our voices and praise. And people will think, well, it's just, it's, your, it's a kind of a Pentecostal charismatic-y thing. And, and it isn't. It's exactly what we read. I thought of it when we read the text, the scripture together, where the psalmist, David, that sweet singer of songs to the Lord, he said, let us, let us exalt his name together. Like, it's not enough for me to do it. It's not enough for you to do it at home in your devotions. But, but when we're here together, let's, let's lift our praise together to the Lord. There's something special about together praise. It's biblical. And so, Lord, as we look at these truths, there are things here that should warm and, and draw our hearts to you in devotion and love. Let us see the truth of your word. Keep us from error. Reach our hearts with the truth, not just our understanding. Quicken the pace of our following after you this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. After dealing with that first period of revealed history from the creation of the world to the flood. That's what we looked at last Sunday. Our writer starts to move on to the second period. Abraham and his, his immediate offspring, they're the second link in this chain of examples of God-pleasing faith and what it's really like. It makes sense not only chronologically... But it makes sense considering our writer's audience. Remember, he writes to these these Hebrew believers who were facing hostility and pushback from their Jewish leaders, their Jewish family uh, members, being pulled back under the law, pulled back under the sacrificial system. So in their decision... The, the, the first audience of our writer's words, in their decision to follow Christ, they were, like Abraham, they were really leaving much of their former world behind. And it was proving to be an unpopular decision. And so, our writer very logically points them to their spiritual father, Abraham. Abraham is actually... The first person said to have pleased God after the flood. And the first thing our writer mentions is the call of Abraham. So there were features in Abraham's call. There were features in his example that these Jewish believers, they needed to emulate as they ventured out in stubborn faith, leaving their former world behind, and that's, that's what you're called to. So point number one. Before Abraham was called into God's future blessing, he was called out of all he had held most dear. It's right in that eighth verse. 
By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was... The words I want are these ones. Called to go out. So it's out. To a place that he had to receive. So there's something he's going to get, but not yet. Going to receive as... uh Uh-oh. As an inheritance. And he went out. There's that outward again. Not knowing where he was going. Now our writer doesn't really flesh out many details about this calling out of Abraham. But, but Moses does in, in Genesis. You can see it in Genesis 12.1. A short verse that says a lot. And the Lord said to Abraham. So here's the go from, go out. From what? Well, from your country. From your kindred and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. So Moses specifies Abraham's um, trio of sacrifice. His country, his kindred, his father's house. Here's Here's the prototype of the call of God. Abraham is constantly held up, undeniably, throughout the Bible as as the model of how God calls people in faith. And there's a reason for that. God is not a bad God. He's a good God. And he has, he has uh, great future, joy-producing promises for Abraham. But he wants to give Abraham something Abraham can't receive where he presently is. That's the money point. God wants to give something to Abraham that Abraham can't receive where he presently is. The future God wants to give Abraham, and through Abraham, the world, the Messiah. But the future God wants to give Abraham can't be had by Abraham in his pre-call position. So, so, so Abraham is going to have to leave behind before he can reach into. There's an order there. And Abraham is is going to have to trust that this is in fact the case. He will, he and you and I, if we're going to follow the Lord, we have to walk out of the lesser before we can walk into the greater. If you try and possess the greater without leaving the lesser, you can't have it. And so God speaks to Abraham. Abraham, I have a promise for you. There's a land. There's offspring like the stars. But I can't give those to you where you are. Your country, your kindred, father's house 
you, you have to leave all those things behind for me to give you what I have. And if, and if Abraham, and if you, and if I, see God's call to get up and move out, to leave behind, if we see that as restrictive, as freedom restricting, as joy restricting, as security restricting, if we, if we see it as being unreasonable in any way, shape, or form so that we want to cling to our present position, then God said, I, I'm, I, I can't, I'd love to give you so much more, but you have to leave this first. We need Abraham's example, don't we? It's counterintuitive, that call. Look at that list in Genesis 12:1. Your country, your kindred, your father's house. There's not a bad thing on the list. But they all represent the things that most naturally draw out our attention and the things that most naturally draw out our affection. Our country, kindred, father's house. Those represent the things that most naturally draw out our energies. They draw out our time. They aren't wicked things. Listen, they they represent the things that preempt devotion to God in a way that's most justifiable in our eyes. I understand that adultery is a hindrance to my walk with God. But my father's house... Here's a principle, remember it the rest of your life. We badly misunderstand Satan's work. It is not, I don't care what you've heard, it is not Satan's primary work to fill up your life with bad things. The pitchfork, the pointy horns, you know. It is not Satan's primary work to fill your life up with bad things. Here's his primary work. Satan's primary work is to fill your life up with so many good things that you won't have time or energy for the best things. And in that, he has tremendous success with Christian people. It is not his primary task to fill your life up with bad things. That happens. It is his primary work to fill your life up with so many good things that you have no time and energy for the very best things. And that is his most successful strategy. Get up, Abraham. Genesis 12.1. Leave your country, your kindred, your father's house. And it's right at this point, right at this point, that we get a clue. That's a helpful text, that Genesis 12.1, because... That lesson from Abraham helps us to understand other parts of our Bibles that are quite confusing. Look at these words from Jesus, for example. Matthew 10, 34 to 39. These are not words from Jesus that people quote. These are not the love one another, forgive as I have forgiven you. 
do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It is better to give than receive. Blessed are the poor. We know those ones. Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. How many people quote that as their favorite saying from Jesus? Now he's going to explain it. For, so he's continuing the same thought. I've, I've, I've come to set a man, not just any man, but a son against his father. And a daughter against her mother. And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. Well, he can't mean that. Whoever, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me, Abraham, get up from your country, your kindred, your father's house. You have to leave those things. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. My mother's 93. She's at Shepherd Lodge. Go down and visit her. She has no idea who I am. She's 93. Here's my question. Does Jesus want me to hate my aging mother? And you're doing what people do when they're saying, this is a trick question and I am not committing myself. Does Jesus want you to hate your kids? It doesn't, doesn't ring right, does it? Certainly we do know that he didn't hate his own mother as his dying thoughts were centered on her on the cross. And we should know just from the closing words of the Matthew text that Jesus' words are not, are not destructive words. They're not life-threatening. They're not life-diminishing words. I mean, he's clearly trying to deepen what's best in my life, not destroy it. Whoever... whoever finds his life will lose it. Two sayings. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So, so we know that Jesus is out to enrich every aspect of my life. We know, because he says so, all of these instructions, whatever I'm going to do with them, they're designed to keep me from ultimately losing my life. All right? His point in this text and the lesson of faith from Abraham's example in Hebrews is this. If I give my primary attention, if I give my primary attention and my primary love and my primary devotion to the things that naturally insinuate themselves into my mind... I will lose my life. That's what Jesus is saying. And I will not 
ultimately bring divine life to those I hold dear. So, so our lives and the lives of our loved ones are only kept safe, will only be found, find it, will only be found when we, like Abraham, have this sense of leaving all else as we pledge our loyalty ultimately to Christ. If I love Rini more than I love Jesus, I won't love Rini as I should love her. If I love Rini more than I love Jesus, Rini won't be kept safe. She is only cherished as she should be cherished when I love Jesus most and see Rini as a gift from Jesus to me. If I put anything before my love for Jesus, I will, even though it feels quite natural, I will lose my life. I will lose it. Abraham, get out from your country, your kindred, your father's house. You have to go out. You have to leave before I can give you what I want to give you. One final reminder. This leaving. This leaving of country, kindred, and father's house. Be careful. I mean, this wasn't just a metaphor for Abraham. This wasn't just some kind of sermon truth, you know. Amen. Isn't that interesting, Pastor Don? Thank you so much. My, my. Blessing my life with such insight. Thank you. wasn't like that for Abraham. Abraham felt the reality of his going out. He felt the reality of it in his blistered, dusty feet. He felt the reality of this going out every time he had to pitch his tent on a bitterly cold night. Instead of being in his father's house. Don't just sing all to Jesus I surrender. Verbal self-denial is cheap and common. Make this going out. Make this leaving. Make it tangible in specific areas. Let it show in your parting with self-consumption and wealth. Let it creep into busy time slots with your family in your routine. Let it, let it stretch you in service to Christ's church when you don't have time for it. Let, let it inconvenience you over and over again. If you never bump into the actual cost of this going out. Of what you've left. You may just be pretending following Jesus. And you might end up losing your life in the end. Point number two. Faith faith is almost never automatic. It must combine with hope and patience as it attaches itself to God's promised future blessing. Hebrews 11, 9 and 10. By faith he went to live, there it is, promised land. As, As in a foreign land, that's strange. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. 
heirs with him of the same promise. For he was, he was looking for a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is, is God. Notice that word promise. It's used twice in these two verses. That's because there were two combined aspects to God's covenant with Abraham. We know about them. First, he was promised a land to inhabit. Our writer calls this the land of promise. It's right there. Second, he was promised offspring. I'll show you that in a minute. He was promised a seed. So, that second part of the promise, offspring, it had an immediate fulfillment in Isaac, and it had a future aspect, the seed, the Christ, who would be a blessing to the whole earth. Moses is very careful to spell out both the land aspect of the covenant and the seed aspect of the covenant. You can see that in Genesis chapter 12, 1 to 3. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, that's what we read, to a land I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. So here's the other part of the promise. I will bless you. Make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How's that going to happen? The Christ, the Messiah, will come. Here's, here's another reference to the same idea. Genesis 15, 5 and 6. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven. Number the stars if you are able. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. This isn't land now. This is offspring. And he believed the Lord. And it was counted to him as righteousness. So, Remember, there's a land promise, there's an offspring promise. And, and, and there's a lesson in this on Abraham's faith that is easily missed in these texts. Here's the important point. There's a reason these messengers take Abraham outside and lift his eyes to the stars of the sky. Yes... God will provide Abraham and Sarah with a son. The writer's going to talk about that in just a few verses. Isaac. Isaac will be a divine miracle. But right from the beginning, Abraham is being pointed beyond Isaac, isn't he? The stars, this many offspring. It's not just Isaac that's being promised here. There will be one offspring, and there will be many offspring. Isaac is the first stage of God's promise of seed to Abraham. He's a necessary part. You have to have Isaac, but he's not the final part. And though it's almost never talked about, 
The same, actually, the same is true with the promise of the land. Yes, God will bring Abraham's offspring into the land of promise, Hebrews 11.9. But that wasn't the end of God's covenant promise. Our writer's text in Hebrews, he's bold enough to say that these promised land dwellers, this is fascinating to me, these promised land dwellers, even there, never considered the land the final aspect of God's covenant with them. It's right there in the text. Look at Hebrews 11. I know I'm saying something that might surprise some people. 12 to 16, I've got it on two slides. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, plural, as many as the stars of heaven, as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith. There's the not. Not having received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that there were strangers, strangers and exiles on the earth. Oh, but Pastor Don, that's because Abraham never got to actually settle in the promised land. That's why these people were said to still be looking for a better heavenly country. You see that, by the way, on the next slide. I guess I didn't finish that. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a a city. And you think, but Pastor Don, that's because Abraham never got to actually settle in the promised land. And that's why these people were said to still be looking for a a better heavenly country. I don't think that works. I don't think that works at all. Because when you read through this chapter, our writer also says that that same eternal hunger was in the heart of people like David. That's 1132. Samuel, 1132. And they, along with a host of others, definitely did dwell in the land of Canaan, the promised land, for a long time. And our writer says, they never saw that as their home, their divinely promised heavenly country, 1116. Notice something else, that they felt they were exiles and in a pilgrimage as long as they were on the earth. That's in 1113. Pastor Don, why are you doing this? Who cares? Well, here's why it matters. Here's why it matters to you. What this passage teaches, you will have faith struggles as long as you walk on this earth. While they were on this earth, it says, they saw themselves. 11.13. While they were on this earth, they saw themselves as exiles. Pilgrims, strangers. What were meant 
to learn from that is there is no present blessing that will remove all the struggles of faith. There never has been. There wasn't for Abraham. There never will be. Here's the lesson. All hopes established outside of Christ are designed to be dashed. All hopes outside of Christ are designed to be dashed. In the promised land, they're still looking for a city that has foundations. They're still looking for a city from God. They recognize that everything wasn't resolved just because they got in the land of Canaan. Read the Old Testament. All hopes are intended to be dashed outside of Christ. This is God's way of educating and training the understanding of faith. We are prone. I am prone. We are prone to misplace our trust for both our joy and our security. And somehow God must strip away what will ultimately disappoint and deceive us. Abraham, you've got to leave your homeland, your kindred, your father's house. There's not the future that I want to give you in those things. Jesus, you have to put me before even family relationships. Or you're going to lose your life even though you think you're finding it. It's exactly the same truth. These people in the promised land, they still recognize this this isn't doing it. God has more. Our text says God longed for what we, Abraham longed for what we all long for. It's in that 10th verse. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations. Interesting phrase, isn't it? Foundations. Permanence. You know what he was looking for? He was looking for what you're looking for. Something that can never crumble. Something that can never be changed. Something that can never be lost. Relationships that the passing of time can't erase. Homes, that, hopes that can't be dashed. Bodies that don't wear out the direct presence of God that feels like home. Foundations. Abide with me. Change and decay in all the world I see. O thou who changest not. Abide with me. Foundations. This is the kind of hope we were saved into. Romans 8, 23 to 25. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly, groan as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Point number three. Faith must be formed and fed 
before the crisis moments arrive. Hebrews 11, 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. I got to tell you, it does seem strange to me that Sarah would be included in this list of great faith exercisers. Here's how she reacted when she first got the news of the promise about the birth of her child. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. It's a year away. Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah's almost 100 years old. Getting up there for having kids. Sarah was listening at the tent door. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of woman had ceased. She's postmenopausal. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, you've got to love these words, eh? after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Worn out. So God promises, and Sarah laughs. She laughs because she will be close to 100 years of age, And all godly women of 100 years of age would laugh and say, Amen, Sarah. But then something happens. Something happens. It's a subtle shift, but a very important one. In a a moment of divine rebuke, Sarah hears these words. It's in Genesis 18, 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. About this time next year, Sarah shall have a son. It's more than just a scolding, that question. Is there, is there anything too hard for the Lord? And then here's the closing faith lesson this morning. When faith looks at what is promised, it will always struggle. When faith looks at the one who made the promise, it will always be nourished. Is, is, any, is anything, so we're not talking now, Sarah, we're not talking about conceiving a child. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Do you see the difference? When Sarah's thinking about conceiving a son, she laughs. There she's thinking about what is being promised. But when the question is directed in a different way, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now you're not looking at what is promised. You're looking at the promiser. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Forget the promise of offspring. Is anything. doesn't matter what is promised. That's not the relevant issue. Is anything at all too hard for the Lord? So... Here's what I learned. There's a blessing in it. There's a responsibility in it. 
It seems to me, when you look at Sarah, it's knowing God that brings the promises that he makes into the reach of faith. It's knowing God. Is anything too hard for the Lord? But there's a double edge to that because you can't get to know God in an instant. And it's too late to pretend closeness to God when you find yourself in the jam of faith-trying circumstances. You can't just get to know him then at the last minute. What I'm saying is, you're constructing whatever measure of trust in God you will one day possess in the face of trial, you're constructing that faith now. You're constructing it now. You will use it later. But you're building it now. You're constructing whatever measure of trust in God you will one day need in the face of trial. You're doing it this morning. You're doing it this morning as we gather together. Or you're not doing it tonight when you stay home and watch TV. All the little things matter. They all add up. They're cumulative in knowing God and building your faith. That's why it's called the walk of faith. Stay close to the good shepherd. There's a dark valley somewhere up the road. Your trip to the hospital is coming. Your trip to the hospital is coming. And you're going to need a table of nourishing faith spread right in the middle of your darkest circumstances and your sternest enemies. It is always that way. We all know we're going to need faith. The hard part to grasp is that it's the little steps along the way faithfully applied that grow that faith and feed that faith. Because when you, when you know God, is anything too hard for the Lord? Let's pray.